Hello, welcome to True Hoop with me, Gerard Hector, and I am joined by a special guest. He is the Assistant Professor of Economics at the U.S. Naval Academy, Scott Kaplan. How are you, sir? Good, Gerard. Thanks for having me on. No problem. All right, we got to get into this first. The Assistant Professor of Economics at the U.S. Naval Academy. Why the Naval Academy? Where'd that all come from? Yeah, that's that's a fair question. So I grew up in California, born and raised in Los Angeles, um, did did undergraduate and graduate school um, up in Berkeley. And, uh, and, you know, when you finish grad school in economics, you apply all over the board, all over the map. And, um, you know, the Naval Academy was particularly interesting to me, um, actually sort of relevant to our conversation, lots of sports, lots of interest in sports. Um, my research, uh, is heavily focused on sports. And so there was a nice fit with the student body and, um, support from my colleagues about, this type of research and these types of conversations. And so, uh, yeah, that's a big part of why I'm there. Awesome. And I mean, forgive me if I don't know this, you have no actual naval requirements, do you? Uh, no, no, I'm a, I'm a civilian employee, no connection uh, prior, prior to this position with the Navy. Um, but I do teach midshipmen. And so there's definitely um, been lots that I've learned from the academy yeah. and from them. And so, um, yeah, it's a, been a fun experience for the, for the past two years. No doubt. And uh, Scott mentioned his areas of research focus on food and health policy and also the economics of sport and entertainment, which is where we're going to focus today. All right. You mentioned you're from um, you're from L.A. Um, does that mean you're a Lakers fan? Big Laker fan. Always have been. You can see behind me. Mm-hmm, I've got mm-hmm. my uh, my Laker memorabilia. Um, yeah. Been a huge Laker fan uh, since I was a kid and actually being up in the Bay for for like 11 years after growing up in LA I got to see a lot of good Laker Warriors games uh in enemy territory um yeah and I always look forward to the 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 once a year visit in DC now <laughs> so I I used to spend summers out in Southern California um, a little bit in LA in the South Bay and then um in Orange County and then I used to, and I lived in San Francisco and on, out on the peninsula in the Silicon Valley like Southern California, Northern California might as well be two different states. Oh yeah, like they're just completely different. Completely different weather, the, different people, vibe, oh, yeah. everything. It's like what? Yep, yep. It's uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny like that they're part of the same state, but the people and the in the vibe are just completely different. I agree. Yeah, for sure. All right, um, guys, this is the future of the NBA basketball series, and of course, Scott will be here to talk about the economics uh, portion of all of this. And it's fascinating to me and, you know, those of you who listen to part one with Ben Aronson, and if you haven't, I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode last Thursday. Ben was great. All this stems from my question, which is in 2030, who was going to pay, assuming he's good, Cameron Boozer's rookie max extension deal, right? Like whatever the salaries balloon to by that point and in a capitalist environment that only goes up, right? We don't, all of a sudden, it's not going to be $10, right? It's sure. only going to be higher than it was, than it, than it is 10 years from now. Where is that money coming from? Most of the BRI revenue now comes from the, the broadcast deal, and we all know that the league is in the process of negotiating its next deal. Um, and the estimates there, as I said last week, are looking at somewhere around $5 billion a year. So if they do another eight-year deal, that's a $40 billion um, deal. Awesome, except for the fact that dollars, I mean, the uh, viewership of the NBA is down. Now, Scott, you'll all say everything is really down, right, that, that we watch nowadays. It used to be uh, a show that I loved, and I... Not afraid to admit it, it's Beverly Hills 90210. If you look back at season five of that show, I mean, the whole run was ridiculous numbers, but season five, and that was the beginning when Tiffany Amethyst came on, replaced Brenda as Valerie, 
That show was averaging 18 point something on a Thursday night. The NBA finals don't even do 18 point something like, you know, and so that's a result of all the more options we have now and just the, the different ways in which we consume. And so, you know, as we were talking off air, Scott, you said, well, that's the thing. It's that maybe it's not so much that people aren't interested. It's just that way we are consuming it is different. And if the way we are consuming it is different, the economic model around it has to change. Um, right now, as I mentioned last week, social media drives um, NBA's popularity. It is more popular than all the other th- uh, three major sports in North America by a lot. It's not even close, but the NBA can't touch the, N- the NFL's ratings. Now, of course, that's scarcity, one game a week, all the things that mm-hmm. we all know about. But when we talk about changing the economic model, Scott, what, what comes to your mind when you think about, all right, the NBA, the way people are consuming it is different. What has to change economically? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, like you said, broadcast deal projected to be something like $5 billion a year. Um, you know, I, th- I think there is still a place uh, for broadcast television in sports. Um, given, you know, I think it's generational, like you, like you alluded to, you know, younger people are consuming uh, things sort of more on streaming or on social media more than an older generation. But we still, you know, there's, there's still an older generation to serve, I think, with this next deal, um, particularly for basketball and football. But like you alluded to, I, we need to think about sort of transitioning towards a different model that's going to be sustainable for a longer period of time. And I think that starts uh, with a couple dimensions. One is monetizing uh, social media in some way for the league. And I think being able to take advantage of, uh, you know, Gerard, you alluded to off air about the the immense popularity of the league on social media, of the NBA compared to other leagues. And I think there's clearly an interest and there's clearly a a base there that needs to be... um, that we need to think about in terms of tapping into from a business standpoint. Um, and the second part is uh, streaming services, which have become popular in other sports. Uh, you know, we have the MLS deal with Apple. Uh, Amazon has jumped into football. I think there's absolutely a model. I mean, the NBA has a league pass model, which is um, viewed through uh, broadcast platforms. You can sort of subscribe to that. But I do think uh, there's an opportunity to take many of these games. I mean, the WNBA actually does it. Uh, now, but I think there's an opportunity to take some of these games, move them to a platform uh, that younger people are using more often, uh, can log into from their computer, from their phone, from their tablet, um, and and watch you know wherever they are. Uh, that's going to be important for the NBA to think about in the next uh, in the next ten or fifteen years. No, I I think you're right on. I mean, we did it last week. An average NBA game, I think, was a one five one six last year, which. That's not great. And if you're doing that CPM model that Ben talked about, cost per per, te- that, that's shitty. A shitty return for you, yeah. right? As a as an advertiser, why am I going to pay this much? You can't deliver the audience that that, that you want. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think the point is correct. Now, one of the one things we talked about was the popularity of the league and social media and the players. And the and Ben said something interesting last week that I really it just stuck with me. He said basketball is culturally interesting. I don't know if people care about watching the sport. Um, and so, yeah, like, and Ben talked about stakes and caring and, you know, the NBA model right now is 82 games, right? That is a long season. Um, it's half the baseball season, which (laughs) baseball is ridiculously long. (laughs) It's got its own set of issues with viewership. Which for sure, a lot. I mean, if you, baseball is a regional thing, clearly. And it just, their numbers are, whoo, I think basketball has got an issue. Um, you know, we talked about declining. Can we cut the season? You know, that's such a tough question because if you're using the current model, no. We have 41 home games. 
that's not the math doesn't work, mm-hmm. right? As the kids say, the math ain't math in using that model. But to your point, if we switch an economic model, can it support? Can a new economic model support a, which is what I want, a 58-game regular mm-hmm. season? Each team plays everybody twice, home and away. You same same number of times so that builds in the rest, which we'll get to in a little bit as part of your research. You can do the whole in-season tournament. It makes stakes because now it's like we only play the Lakers twice. We only play the Warriors twice. We only play. Yeah. I mean, yep. it's one and one and we got to go. And now if you lose eight, 10 games in a row on a 58 game season, odds are you're not making the playoffs. Yep. Right. Like whereas in an 82 game season, nah, whatever. Yep. We can probably overcome that. Yeah. I think you know, there's a it's a really interesting point. It's been talked about for a while now in terms of how much to shorten it, if at all. You know, I think as an economist, the first thing I think of is, you know, what's sort of the elasticity of the response? So, you know, you reduce the number of games by 10. How much additional viewership or attention does each game, each of those remaining games get? And of course, like there's a scarcity factor. So you have fewer games. Each game sort of has heightened attention. But there's a question of like how much uh, and, and does that make up for the lost revenue you you sort of have from, from reducing the number of games? You know, I think and the NBA model is really interesting because unlike football, a, a significant portion of basketball income comes from ticket sales. It comes from uh, going to the game, you know, at least 20% or so. Um, and so that's not a trivial uh, amount. And I think related to your point about, okay, let's make the quality of the games better. Like you, we should care more, right? About each additional game if there are fewer of them. Related to that is, well, if I'm going to the game, and this is something my research mm-hmm. talks about, mm-hmm. I don't want to go to the game to see, you know, that men players play back and forth, <laughs> like especially in a regular season game. It's just, it's, you know, it's not going to move the needle for me. Um, at the same time, maybe fewer games allows, uh, you know, not only sort of from a health standpoint, uh, if that's mm-hmm. the argument that many of these superstars are making about playing, um, but just the importance of the game. So there's more reason to play. And so mm-hmm. I think it, you know, it's a really sort of multidimensional question and it involves a lot of different issues, but I, but I can see pathways to which a shortened season could, uh, could make sense, especially if you see a, a massive increase in the availability of star players and each game matters more like you were talking about. Yeah, so I'm, I love it. We're, we're going to go here now. So the reason why that the 58-game model I like so much is, again, because it's round 30. We already got 30, right? 29 yep. times 2, for, done. Now, the problem is going to come in when we expand, which we will in the next, mm-hmm. I don't know, two to three years. And then we add team in Vegas and Seattle. So we'll have to just make the math work that way. But the point is, if you conduct it over the same amount of time that the season is conducted now, it also allows the NBA to own two days of the week. Right now, football owns Sunday, Monday, Thursday. You know, those are their days. Yeah. I mean, shit, they're going to they're gonna soon own Friday, maybe. Who, who knows? Mm-hmm. So can the NBA take Wednesday, Friday? Can they take Wednesday, Saturday? I'd probably go Saturday because college football is only a, a few months mm-hmm. of the year and you can probably go toe-to-toe with college football, which tends to be a regional thing anyway. Maybe maybe that's the model, right? So in, in any – and this is – I've talked to a million sports scientists about this and people who study human bodies. 82 games is just too much of a load on a, mm-hmm. on a body. It just is. Like I know that fans don't want to hear that, but it's a true statement. Like this isn't pick up with your friends at 24-hour fitness. Right. Like this is NBA basketball with the biggest, strongest, fastest people in the world. Sometimes three games in five nights, getting on a plane, flying cross yep. country, like getting to bed at three. It's like, and the importance of sleep. People don't like to talk. Like, oh, these guys fly private. I'm like, they're seven foot tall people right. on tiny tubes, 30,000 feet above the ground. Like, uh, And it's uh, just a point, one thing out on that. I, 
I sort of find the, the argument of like, well, players in the past used to play 82 games. They didn't complain. Yeah. And have you seen those players now? Yeah. Like, I, I, <laughs> well, I, I sort of saw, I see it falling flat because there's so much more research now about that, like you were saying, about the health impacts of uh, an 82 game season. We've got wearables. We've team, you know, teams have multiple doctors, multiple analysts looking at like fatigue. Um, you know, there's a there was research at University of San Francisco who looked at this sleep index and basically found that like, you know, games when when that are preceded by nights of poor sleep, you have much likelier risk of injuries or poor play. I mean, all that stuff has become so much more advanced, and and so. As a researcher myself, that's the kind of stuff I take really seriously, and and these people know what they're talking about. Of course, like there's some manipulation to be had of this system. Like players are sitting out when they're not actually injured, or mm-hmm. uh, claim you know the Dallas Mavericks last season claiming that mm-hmm. uh, they've got injuries yeah. when they yeah. actually just want to you know, provide a better lottery position. All that mm-hmm. stuff is important to to keep no in the discussion. But but there's no doubt that an 82 game season is not a sustainable level of play for a star player year after year. I completely agree. I mean, guys, you ever see Kevin McHale walking around in an NBA arena? Ain't pretty. Yeah. Doc Rivers shuffles his feet and is hunched over. Like, these dudes, like, it's not good for you. Like, this this stuff is, isn't good. And anyway, so my point being, you do that over the same course of time you have now. At most, you play twice over any seven-day period. Mm-hmm. That is huge because it allows for recovery, actual practice, new splash people. NBA teams don't practice in the regular season. You want to know why? They have no time. When are they going to practice? Right. We landed at 3 a.m., games at, games at 7.30. They're not practicing that day. Yeah, like that's just not a thing. You're gonna stand around and do like a walkthrough, which is basically, yeah, yeah, yeah this is what we're running. Blah blah, whatever. Go back and get some rest. Yeah. I mean, this is it's gonna make the quality of the game better. Now, of course, to your point, Scott, they're gonna be people that try to manipulate it and teams. And I want to be clear about something: players don't want to sit out. Like, trust me, I talked to enough. The team is the one telling them, "No, nah, dude, I need you to rest right. now because they're worried about you tearing your ACL, and now that means you can't play for me, and I can't recoup money." Right, because that's ultimately what this relationship is, right? The owners are like, we're paying you X amount of dollars because we believe you'll generate X, Y, Z. Well, I can't let you generate that if you're out for the season. Yep. So they'll be like, nah, sick this guy or arrest them or whatever. And that's tough for fans, but there's something that you brought up uh, in your work, which is the intro- introduction of uh, hedonic pricing. So when you talk, talk to us about what that means uh, for ticket revenue, which as you say, not insignificant at 20% of the overall BRI. Yeah. So so uh, just to define what hedonic pricing is, hedonic pricing is the idea that you can split up the price of a good into its various attributes. So the typical example we think about is a home. You can price a bedroom in a home. You can price a bathroom. You can price a garage, right? And then you get sort of the final value of the home and you can decompose that value. So, you know, when you go to a basketball game, you're looking for multiple things when you're, when you're deciding to buy a ticket. You know, first and foremost, you want to go to a uh, see maybe your team play. Uh, you want to see a competitive game. Uh, maybe you care about the quality of the other team. Um, it, but you know, one of the focuses of my work is, well, how do you, how much do you value the actual star, the players, the, the players that play in the game? Um, and what the work sort of tries to do is, it actually takes advantage of when star players sit out, um, which happens a lot in the NBA. So that's as a researcher, that's good um, because I get to observe a lot of these instances where star player sits out. What happens to ticket prices? Um, and I try to measure the change in ticket prices when a star sits out, right? And you can think about that sort of difference um, as being the value of the star uh, to to a fan. Um, 
And so unsurprisingly, for the biggest stars, you find huge, uh, huge mm-hmm. changes in ticket prices. I think uh, in, in the period that I was looking at, I found that LeBron, when he was announced out of a game, you had an average drop of like $40 a ticket, which uh, is probably more than uh, the full price of a ticket if you went to a game in Charlotte or Indiana <laughs> or somewhere. Uh, and so, yeah, so uh, there's obviously incentives for these players to play in, in bigger markets. Um, Curry, similar, similar uh, yeah. response. Um, and so, you know, I think, this sort of lends itself to the importance of the availability of stars. And um, back to back to what we were talking about before, these different dimensions of, okay, if you reduce the schedule, well, what happens? Like number of games goes down, the obvious answer would be, okay, revenues fall. But if we can get players playing, you know, more, uh, more often, then that's, mm-hmm. that's sort of a, an argument for it to kind of come back up a little bit. And like, Correct. I think, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the new NBA awards, I think condition on you playing 65 mm-hmm. games now, right? Yep. So mm-hmm. under your proposal of something like a 58 uh, or a, a 60, uh, 58 game season, um, you would, you in theory should be able to play all those games. Uh, mm-hmm. the NBA certainly thinks so. If they're going to reward mm-hmm. players for playing 65 games, um, if they're spaced out, like you're talking about appropriately, um, we're starting to sort of build a case, I think for fewer games, uh, that now matter more. Uh, mm-hmm. I like the idea that you had of having sort of designated nights for the NBA. Mm-hmm. I think, um, we see that being really effective in the sports world, especially when there are multiple other sports going on at the same time. Like right now, I can tell you right now, like TNT Thursdays, ESPN Wednesdays. Now we have ESPN primetime Saturday. Like if you can create a brand that's associated with the mm-hmm. day that makes, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of delivers a consistent viewership. Um, and you know, and maybe part of this is thinking about how to leverage social media for these types of things. Like maybe there's even like, I don't know, this this is sort of out there, so off the cuff, but maybe there's even like a lunchtime game or something, right? Like one, like yeah, yeah, yeah. if it's easy to access uh, from where I am uh, and we care a lot about the audience that's watching on TV and, you know, maybe this is like a summertime thing, I don't know, but we can think creatively about uh, reducing the number of other options that are available so that you feel compelled and, uh, and engaged with watching the NBA that, at that time. Uh, I love this, God. You're right on there. Uh, during this season, I want to say it, ha- it happened once for sure. And I remember that night, all 30 teams were in action and NBA Twitter was literally on fire. They were like, oh my God, it's 15 games. How am I going to keep track of all I'm like, yeah, but you're all excited about it and you're watching it, right? It's like, oh, everybody switched to Raptors, Pete, like, right? And, and you're just getting, you're doing your thing and you're flipping around. And I think, yeah, it's a lot to consume and it will be harder on us poor media people because we have more game, but so what? Like our jobs are already awesome as it is. We get to watch basketball for a living. Like I think again, Wednesday night, all right, we're all in action. Saturday, we're all in action. Like that is, I think, awesome. And to your point, using it as a brand, right? Whether it's TNT, whatever the the ultimate, um, you know, vehicle that we use happens to be, I, I think that that makes sense. Yeah, I think, I wanna- well, and just one, one, one quick uh offshoot of that i think there was a game i think it was the day before um election day this past year um where they didn't want to have any games on election day because they wanted to encourage people to go out and vote um but the day before i I think that maybe it was the day where all 30 all 30 teams were playing and i like what they did with they staggered the start times of the games and so Mm -hmm. you had games starting at 7 7 15 7 30s and exactly and, and the nca does a good job of this in march madness i think what's nice about that is at least in my research with television viewership, we find that the the biggest viewership is happening towards the end of games because mm-hmm. uh, there's so many of these games. 
They're relatively long for how many of them there are. And so you get people kind of tuning in when the mm-hmm. and games actually often stay close, actually, uh, yeah. relative to other sports towards the like mm-hmm. football, you could tune into Monday Night Football, it could be a blowout and mm-hmm. after the first half. But in basketball, right. you tend to to more often than not get to the fourth quarter and the game is still in play. Mm-hmm. And so I think this staggering, um, what it does is it provides uh shorter mini outcomes that people care about. Um, and I think that that again, for this new generation, and I find myself like also struggling with attention spans. And I know Ben was saying that for, for, uh, from the last podcast for a whole NBA game, you know, tip to the end, like the regular season that uh, during a weekday, especially now living on the East coast, like that's a huge commitment. Um, and you know, maybe I'll do it for the Lakers, but like, there's no chance not every night. It. Yeah. Yeah. There's, <laughs> right. Exactly. Not every night. Uh, especially, you know, when you're working the next morning, things like that. Um, and so I think that this idea that you can almost like create micro smaller mm-hmm. smaller events that still capture the brunt of the audience but but right. aren't as like uh, fatiguing in terms of how long it is uh, is a really kind of interesting way to think about like the the next generation of viewers. I love it. Well, you mentioned gambling um, and why the micro betting is such a key part of this. Uh, we talked about a little bit off air. It's like Charlotte, Indiana on a Tuesday night. Unless you're a Hornets fan or a Patriots fan, most people aren't tuning into that game. Though you should because Terry's Halliburton's really good. Yep. <laughs> um, and there's some really good young players in Indiana. Charlotte still doesn't have a clue what they're doing as an organization, but that's neither here nor there. Um, the micro betting aspect of it, right? We've seen the influx of cash. I mean, and the league needs it. The only reason why gambling is here because the league needs FanDuel and DraftKings and everybody to fill their coffers with money. They need it desperately. But there's a smarter economic way, you think, right? To to have those betting houses as part of this this conversation. Yeah, um, definitely. And this is this is really new. And I think the research is is still evolving on this front. But you know, I th- I think one thing that doesn't get talked about enough in the sort of in the media about gambling and how it interacts with sports. Obviously there's, there's obvious cons to like to, to introducing gambling. I mean, there's heavy regulation on this uh, sort of for, for obvious reasons, but I think one thing that doesn't get talked about enough are these uh, what I would call small stakes, micro micro bets um, that are, are placed with the idea of generating individual interest in, in something. So um, you know, what, what I found in my research is that even by placing a, any sort of bet, but you know, most people are playing small bets in this case uh, on an outcome. Uh, it's going to generate significantly more interest in that outcome. And so, why micro betting is so interesting is because, like you were pointing out, if you're not a Charlotte fan or an Indiana fan, it's a Tuesday night, uh, but you still sort of want to create some engagement for yourself. One way to do that uh, is to actually put a small amount of money on on a few outcomes in that game you know maybe you're you're uh you're a Halliburton guy and you think he's mm-hmm. going to go for 20 and 10 uh or you want to see Lamelo and, Hall- and Halliburton combined for 60 mm-hmm. points or something like that right mm-hmm. some some outcome of interest um now now I'm sort of engaged with the game differently than I was if I hadn't been betting on the game because right. why would I care about Lamelo and Halliburton getting 60 points unless I had a $2 bet on that on that mm-hmm. outcome and so mm-hmm. the idea that we can there's a complementarity with sort of removing the like bigger problems with gambling where like people are are uh, spending too much or become addicted and things like that. I think there's an argument to be made about thinking about uh, a role for gambling to increase engagement um, with with games that otherwise you people wouldn't be engaged with. So I think that that and, and that's a that's an obvious way to monetize and uh, in, in a, in a complementary partnership between these uh, two entities. You know, I love that you said that because anecdotally in my own life, one of my group chats with 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 my with my friends you know, it's all sports guys. So it's like all, but every sport possible, but 
you know, I'm probably bigger into tennis than most of them are, but they'll be like, yeah, tell me about Eubanks. I bet two bucks on him winning six and a half. Like, I'm like, yeah, yeah that's why I think like, and that night like, they, they, they watched the whole entire exactly. Wimbledon. They're like, this is amazing. Like, I, I want to see if I'm engaged. And I'm like, if it works for tennis, why couldn't it work for basketball? Yep. And I think this, uh, there's some really, uh, sort of seminal literature on this. Basically, people are what we call risk-loving in small sums. And so this idea that like, um, you know, if if it's only a small amount of money at stake, like if it's one or two bucks, then I actually enjoy this sort of variance associated with, you know, whether I'm going to win or lose, right? And and even if and sort of on average, I lose money because that's how these gambling companies make money, I'm sort of willing to pay that that premium right. in order to increase my own engagement with with the event because it's fun because I because otherwise I wouldn't watch Eubanks and and I like you know watching him and then I learn about the sport and then mm-hmm. sort of I'm happy if he wins because I win four bucks and I can right. I can buy a coffee or whatever like like <laughs> right. like people have these games they play with themselves about this um, and so I, I I definitely think um, and I think the gambling companies know this like I think you know the way they promote it um mm-hmm. that's how that's how they really can can reach a larger base of people is people who are like not going to spend their life savings uh gambling but but mm-hmm. are sort of still interested in creating that rush of like what's going to happen if this if this player wins or loses i love this you the part you you mentioned about the research where it's like <clears throat> if it's relatively small stakes now of course we do know that there are people who have serious gambling addictions and will absolutely in many cases bet their life savings and that is a problem and of course, anyone who has those issues, like we hope they get help and there are proper channels and avenues. But it's this weird kind of moral dilemma, maybe, where you're like, the micro, but this is better for the overall good. But in the process, I don't know what the percentage is, two and a half percent might be in real trouble. Yep. Like, how do we sort of balance that? That's a, it's a, uh, as an economist, I, I that is not my role to balance something like that. <laughs> That's a very important question. Um, you know, like, I, I think... My job, sort of my the way I think about it is, let's just put all the dimensions on the table and make sure we have a fully informed argument about how we're gonna like promote or not promote this thing. And I, and and I think uh, the reason why I sort of feel that this needs to be stated is because the popular narrative about gambling is all the stuff you just said, which is super important and, and should be talked about. It's really serious. Um, but but there's this other side that I think um, you know doesn't get talked about enough and is important for for the business. Um, and I think something that's just worth thinking about as we move forward to this sort of these newer models of engagement and viewership, um, they're going to have a role to play. So I think it's important just to think about what what role that is. Yeah. And I think also, too, Scott, we've already, well, not we, but the, these leagues have already opened the door to this, right? It's already here. So we ain't closing the barn door now, folks. So if we're going to do it, to your point, let's get everything out on the table that we know using actual data and research, right? Like, and not just conjecture even though yes it's a real thing to worry about because every other day we see that some you know college person getting suspended some nba player nfl player getting suspended because they bet on games like those are real things but let's look at the numbers what are the percentage of the overall population of people actually doing and what are they doing are they using insider information or are they just saying oh i know basketball let me bet right like what and you can figure that out i'm sure the stuff gets monitored pretty easily um and you can put in the proper safeguards and bells and whistles to really track Mm -hmm. and, and make sure I think it's important to know how this all works because, yeah, it's here. And if we can find a way to utilize it in a safe manner that gets everybody engaged, well, why not, right? Totally. Yep, I'm with you. I think you, uh, we've, we've hit this point uh, perfectly. All right, guys. We will be back after a brief commercial break. This episode of True Hoop is brought to you by BetterHelp. Hey, guys. Gerard from True Hoop here. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do? 
a hell of a question. Would you maybe go for a run, take a nap, read a book, maybe show up for a friend? Now, depending on the day, any one of those would be a great idea. Most of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Now, I've been open in the past with you guys about this. I see a personal therapist as well as a couple therapists for my partner and I. And both are extremely helpful in developing positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. Therapy empowers you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TrueHoop today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TrueHoop. All right, Scott, uh, one time Henry Abbott, founder of True, um, someone you met at the Sloan Conference, uh, said to me when he worked at, uh, about the time he worked at ESPN, said, Gerard, for ESPN basketball stories, here's how they work. LeBron and Steph, if they are the subject matter of the story, that article will do numbers. And to a lesser extent, much to my chagrin, because I'm a KD guy, sometimes KD, mm-hmm. but that's it. Nobody else does anything of any relevant note in terms of moving metrics. Um, and a lot of your work, work is, uh, Scott, the economic impact and value of superstar players. Um, and we've heard this narrative, or not even narrative, it's a factual statement over time, that the superstar players in the NBA, because of the overall value they bring to the league, not just their team, but the league as a whole, and we talked about it in the declining ticket rates for a LeBron and Steph when they're not in, mm-hmm. particularly in, in away arenas. And that's something anecdotally I can speak to. If I'm covering the Nets and the Lakers are in town or the Warriors are in town, it's much more crowded two hours before the game. It's just everything is just different when those two guys. But, are and and draw that actually gets back to your original point of this 58 game season. Like if you only if you know they're only going to come once a year, right? Mm-hmm. The ticket prices are not going to decline like the average amount. Like I have, like no. 40, it's going to be like you know, like I find in the paper. Like for LeBron, it's 73 dollars a ticket when he doesn't play in an away game. I mean. Uh, you're you're already seeing that sort of rebound effect, right? Of of yeah. like a reduction in the number of uh, instances mm-hmm. you could see LeBron play, no doubt. Um, and so players like that, their value to the league is so high. Um, and in your research, you talk about how, and it's it's a fact. I've said it before. They are those players are actually grossly underpaid for the amount of value they bring into the league, which actually. Is a two-part question for me, but first, I want to get into your research of the actual value a player brings into the NBA, particularly a superstar player. Yeah, um, so some recent research um, I've looked at is uh, examining player value uh, through the lens of the NBA salary cap, which features maximum minimum level contracts, which is slightly different than, than other leagues, but um, just to uh, preface that, Basically, a player in the NBA can only be paid so much. And uh, at, at the same time, uh, the minimum amount of player can be paid is also set by the league as a result. So you have this uh, pay compression going on in the league. Um, and as a result, this, these, the top players, the superstar players, uh, are often paid lower than their market values because they reach this, this maximum level uh, that a team can, play, uh, to, can, team can pay them. Um, and so as a result, these players are generating significant 
bargains, not only for their teams, uh, but for the league as a whole, because these superstar players are driving revenues for other teams, not just their own. And that's really important. Um, that's why we see when LeBron misses an away game, uh, ticket prices fall a lot. Uh, guess who benefits from from ticket sales of the away game? It's the away team or the uh, it's the home team that's uh, that LeBron's uh, visiting. And so um, it's really important to think about uh, the different types of ways these players add value. Um, and, and my paper tries to use an economic argument to understand player value. Um, and so basketball fans will think about player value as like, okay, well, how statistically good is a player? Mm-hmm. You know, how many win shares are they adding? What's their expected plus minus compared to other players? Um, value of a replacement players, things like that. And as an economist, I'm really interested in what gets consumers demand or consumers attention uh, for, for players. And one thing that the literature, uh, especially in the NBA has found is the driving factor for demand for star players is their popularity, right? And of course, a player's popularity is correlated with how productive they are on the court, but they're not perfectly correlated. Um, right. and, and there are many instances of players who are highly popular, uh, who are not super productive. I mean, you can think about, uh, like like sort of legacy players, like players that are are going to retire, the the Kobe Bryant farewell farewell mm-hmm. tour, um, and, and players like that, players who are past their prime, like Derrick Rose, um, and there's a popularity aspect that that fans really seem to care about, and so my research tries to use that um, that logic and predict the value of players um, using this popularity metric, and you know basically what what my research finds is sort of intuitive the superstar players are highly underpaid because they're limited by these max contracts but at the same time on the flip side these veteran minimum guys who are making a million dollars a year because that's the minimum contract that the nba allows are mm-hmm. are actually highly overpaid because they're replaceable um you could you could in theory substitute a player from the g league uh, relatively mm-hmm. seamlessly um into their slot and not much would change in terms of the team's uh, performance and so the, the the paper essentially tries to decompose um, and decompress this distribution and try to provide some some real values that uh, for these players. Yeah, and, and that player uh, that paper, excuse me, is called "Putting a Price on Popularity: Evidence from Superstars in the National Basketball Association," which was published in November of 2021. And what's interesting there, Scott, is okay. You mentioned the Kobe Bryant farewell towards a Laker fan. I'm sure that had emotional value for high value for you right? Watching Kobe in that farewell tour. Now, you could argue from a team building standpoint, that's what screwed you all for the next eight years and why your team was terrible and was constantly in a lottery and couldn't develop, right? Because you had to pay him all that money. But you're saying for the Lakers and the Bus family, that's maybe, but they, they recouped a ton of money off of jersey sales, tickets, this, that, and the third, right? So like, it's this kind of weird push-pull, right? Where it's like, you would think that in order for you to be ultimately successful economically as a team is to always be good in winning championships. And it's like, maybe, but the farewell tour also generates money for us. Totally. I, and I think, you know, this gets down to how revenues are divvied up in the NBA, which is not uh, obvious. Actually, this is something I've learned a lot by doing this research, but the the local broadcast deals for the teams and the ticket sales, all, all that money goes to the teams. And so uh, the Lakers have, uh, Huge incentive to uh, put out a product on the court that's in demand by fans. Now, whether that that demand is generated because Kobe's on the court and the Lakers suck, or because the Lakers are really good but they don't have any sort of marketable player, like it, it doesn't actually matter in terms of mm-hmm. what the Lakers the amount of money that they're getting from this. And so, um, I think that's that's important as an economist. Now, of course, there are like 
different ways that teams are uh, different objectives that they have, right? So some teams want to win championships, even if that comes at like a profit loss. There are some teams uh, that want to that want to be bad on purpose because they want to get a high draft pick, which in theory is going to help them uh, in future years. So there's all kinds of you know multi-year time horizon uh, problems that these teams are thinking about, but uh, sort of sort of what we find in the research uh, is pretty clear and it's the popularity of the players um, is, is in terms of comparing the popularity versus productivity of the players. Popularity is what attracts fans, uh, especially going to the games. Um, and it's not surprising because these players are, are beyond being extremely talented at what they do. These players are like superhuman uh, people. I mean, especially in the NBA, you have, uh, you know, I don't even know what the average height is now, but it's probably like something like six, six or six, seven, six, seven yeah, yeah. in the NBA. I mean, these are uh, uh, celebrities as much as they are uh, athletes. And I think that's really important when we think about the future of the league and monetizing uh, uh, different outcomes in the league that we that, that fans care about. Mm-hmm. The players drive, especially in the NBA, the players drive a significant part of the fan following uh, in the league. I mean, draw. we were talking about this offline, even in the offseason of the NBA. I mean, I don't think there is a sport that generates as much attention as the NBA offseason. Um mm-hmm. Just because of the interest in player movement, uh, yeah. what players are doing with their time uh, when you know whether they're training or playing mm-hmm. for Team USA or running their their skill camps. I mean, uh, all of that stuff is being followed on social media. It's it's a culture. It's a it's a culture mm-hmm. of the sport. And I think um, you know the 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 better we can assess the value of players and more accurately, uh, the better we can figure out how to monetize them. And I, I love that you went there. So the, the monetizing part is interesting. So one of the more popular things that the NFL does is hard knocks, right? People look forward to yep. that. I mean, that's essentially the entire NFL, I mean, NBA offseason, right? Like, and I know why Adam doesn't want that out there. And I know why the PlayStation doesn't want it out there. Because, you know, there's lots of things happen that they don't Imagine you get the, the Jordan Poole, Draymond Green episode. <laughs> right. Like, there's just stuff we don't want out there, right? Like, and I get it. But, like, if that is interesting and driving interest, like, just look. So one of the, the easy ways to think about this is the mic'd up for sound stuff that we get mm-hmm. when we watch games, right? Everyone by now should know. All of that shit is sanitized <laughs> and edited through. It's the reason why you only you get the stuff in the third quarter right. that was said in quarter one. Because they had to wade through all the F you mother, right? All that stuff had to get out of there before they found, okay, this is a wholesome moment. Let's put it in. And I understand the need because you're like, we're on TV, kids. Uh, we can't get that. But the NBA has a treasure trove of like, I mean, imagine Team USA uh, minicamp right now that just concluded in Vegas with a select team. In one of the right. scrimmages, beat I the main two team. of them in two in a row, ten minutes. Do you know how much shit talking was going on? And like, y'all bump. You're telling me people would not. Wa- of course, they bought that. And an unedited version of that with some, you know, you bleep out the curses, obviously, whatever. But I mean, that's gonna do numbers. I mean, just look at the yeah. last dance, right? The last dance was sort of our our viewpoint into like that whole. I mean, that generated a ton of interest. I mean. I love where you're going with this. I think, um, especially in a generation that is all about like the sound bites and the TikToks mm-hmm. and the reels or mm-hmm. whatever, um, figuring out a way to get more of that unfiltered content. Um, like it, it, the reality is, like whether Adam wants it or not, like that's who you're competing with. You're competing with people who are putting out content that is is immediately attracting your attention for for one reason or the other we, people don't have time now to like sit through like a five ten minute intro of like why team usa is so interesting or like mm-hmm. why we should care about training camp like 
Like people want to see those clips and uh, they want to Cade Cunningham hammer dunking on Jaron Jackson Jr. And it's like, oh my God. That's right. Like- There's more of that. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that that's exactly right. So I, I love the idea of the NBA. I don't know if it's like an adult swim model of this or something yeah, where yeah, like yeah. you basically have uh, some games that um, you basically get that like kind of full experience of like, let's hear what the players are talking about on the court. Like let's get into the huddle. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I think there's absolutely an opportunity there. Uh, again, the, the, there's so much interest in the players that the more the more you can get them uh, in their real elements, like how they're performing, like all that stuff, I think people will eat up. And I think being honest with ourselves, part of the conversation we had with Ben last week is, and we talked about the media portion of this is not us, it's true, we're great, um, <laughs> but like we're bad at telling stories, right? And it's because we feel that there has to be this sanitized version of whatever's out there. Oh, they were down and out. And then all of a sudden LeBron came at the end and saved the day hero. It's like, guys, like, come on. Like, I want to know that, like, and we've seen all the stories now when you have all these player podcasts where like Jeff Teague and these various guys come out or uh, Tristan Thompson. Like, oh, no, David Black drew up that play. LeBron was like, no, we're not running that here. I mean, imagine if you saw right. that. Gonna, I'm like, oh, my God, this is the. Now, I know it's going to be weird because then the media is going to ask him eight billion questions about why did you not listen to David Black's play? Like. I get all the reasons why it doesn't happen. But the point is, if we just kind of like understand that sports at the end of the day is entertainment and it's really like the stakes are high because of the money. Right. But in the terms of the world, like this isn't that big of a deal. Yeah. Oh, my God. LeBron said F you to somebody. It's like, OK, like, fine. Like, it's you know what I mean? I think it's sort of like equating like, guys, how serious is this really? I Versus like completely you know, agree. I mean, you know, I think. It- Another sort of uh, additional thing to think about with with the players, I mean, play, like players like LeBron uh, and you know, Megan Rapino, like these players mm-hmm. have massive social influence. Like mm-hmm. if, yeah. if you, uh, yeah, I mean, the things that they're able to do and, and share um, and the way they, yeah, the values that they stand for, I mean, all that stuff's really important. And I think people recognize that, like them performing as an athlete on the court or on the field mm-hmm. is different than, you know, how yes. they are as a human being. And Mm-hmm. At the same time, like as a, as a fan of LeBron or of Kobe or whoever, mm-hmm. like I'm interested in all of that. Like I want to see, mm-hmm. I want to see like everything. Like I want to see Kobe at a Taylor Swift concert. I want to see <laughs> yeah, like yeah. you know LeBron at his skill camp. Like mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I've been loving all the the videos of Steph Curry with his Curry with the campers. Yeah. yeah, like the mm-hmm. drills that he runs. Like I mean that stuff is like is uh is all there. Like we just need to mm-hmm. figure out a way to incorporate to that it. into mm-hmm. like a more sort of mass uh produced and 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 viewed way um because because i I think the way social media is built it's it's people driven and people and consumers want to see uh you know their favorite players or or celebrities doing what they do and that's that's what it's all about no i'm with you there i was wondering scott what you think about this as an economist so the nba's governors the guys the guys and ladies that own the 30 teams all are apex predator capitalists in their regular life. But in the NBA, they're like weird versions of socialists, kind of, sort of. What would what do you think about the NBA model switching to strictly a full-on free market model? Um, you still have salary cap and uh, uh, a luxury, you know, mm-hmm. cap and floor where you gotta spend a certain amount, can't go over luxury tax, all that, but there's no adjustment how much players make. If you want to pay Steph Curry, $80 million, that's on you. But now you've got to figure out how you're going to fill out the rest of your roster with only $45 million left. Yeah. Good luck. That's an interesting right? uh, idea. So th- I think the NFL has a model similar to this where there is a cap, 
but there's no restrictions on the amount of, I mean, there is a minimum level a player can be paid, Mm -hmm. but there's no restrictions, I think, on the maximum amount that a player can sign for. Um, I think that's, you know, that's really interesting. Like, I'm not exactly sure how that's like, uh, what what that spills over into in terms of like how Mm -hmm. the other dimensions of the league and the revenue structure has changed. You know, I think it's important to have some sort of cap for competitive balance because the NBA or basketball in general is a sport where one or two players can make such a big difference um, that if you have, you know, three or four, I mean, we've seen it already with the super teams, mm-hmm. like there's teams mm-hmm. have already manipulated uh, the cap in a way such that they can, they can build these, these teams and those teams are dominant. And, um, and that's maybe interesting for fans. So that's a different conversation we could have is like, maybe that's actually a good thing. Um, but certainly, but the, but the last team we see, we saw do that successfully were the warriors, right. but they were lucky because of Steph's injuries. He was on a contract paying him less than the value he was worth. If he had never gotten those right. ankle injuries, he's not on that low contract. The cap There's no way up. they signed Durant. The cap went up. Right. I think like the, the season right. before they signed Kitty, like mm-hmm. 20 million a year or something. Right. It was like this discreet jump from the new TV deal. And so I think, all of that, all it was, a, it, was a, it was a perfect storm for exactly. that. Exactly, yeah, exactly. But one of those things not being there, there's no way they can afford it. it. Just doesn't work, right? And and actually, I think the new CBA has made it even more punitive for teams to to spend. Mm-hmm. There's like yes. an additional apron of, of luxury mm-hmm. taxes, and so I, I think competitive balance for the league is good. The, the 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 point of view that I would come at it from is like the superstar players are getting underpaid, right? So so if you're a, an agent for a player, or you're thinking about the the player side of these negotiations, of course, like. LeBron James wants there to be a higher maximum level contract, if at all, because he'll make more money if, if, if they do that. The question is, will the league as a whole suffer because of a lack, potentially a, a less parity, wider dispersion in team ability? Um, I don't know. That, that's a great question. Uh, yeah. It's one that um, I think economists would be really interested in trying to figure out, but um, yeah. I don't know the answer. I'd love for someone to somehow figure out a way to study that, but here's what I think about that too. And David Thorpe, Chris Thorpe says this all the time. Everyone seems to think, oh, well, that means the Lakers and the teams with all the big money are going to have all the best players. No, they're not. Like, these guys want to play. You're you're not going to have seven ball-dominant dudes on one team because they're not all going to get playing time, and they all want to shine. Right. Right? Like, and that's not what – on a team with seven ball-dominant dudes, five people have to take a severe backseat. Not happening in this league. Like, that's just not – and then, again, the money doesn't work, right? Because, again, okay, I'm going to take $10 when I can get 90 and be – that's, I mean, no one's doing that. It's insane. Yeah. So I think there's a way in which you can do it where, again, you keep the floor, keep the penalties for going over the repeater, all that stuff. You eliminate the draft, number one. So everyone's a free agent. Like, go wherever you want. Look, make these teams have to be good at their job, right? If you are wooing me and I want to come, why? What makes your place so better? What are you going to do for me? How are you going to help us win? Like, if they can, sure, I'll sign for whatever. If not, I'm going to go talk to this other team. And I think that, yeah. you know, kind of open up that free market kind of system. I So from the standpoint of the, of the top players, that that system would be great for them. Uh, no doubt about it. I, I, the only thing I can think of is there being, like you, like we were talking about, some competitive balance considerations. Like the NBA has 30 teams. They already suffer from this, like, huge differences in market size. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so we would have to think about the the money being able to work for some of the smaller market teams. But, you know, I think one thing related to this that's, um, we think about this from the standpoint of the players and and increasing their compensation, which is what a free market would basically do, um, is ways to um, sort of compensate them for their popularity, right? So a player, mm. a player uh, like LeBron or Steph Curry is bringing in all kinds of viewers, viewers that maybe don't even, like Ben was saying last week, don't even care about the game, like don't want to watch basketball, 
I'm just like the biggest stuff. I mean, look at China and Kobe. Like this is a great example. Mm -hmm. Like it's literally a star that they care about. And like, if he's playing Mm -hmm. great, if he's not playing (laughs) also great, like we want more Kobe. Um, And so I think what that sort of lends itself to is some sort of sort of general pool of money that can help uh, sort of compensate these players for the Mm -hmm. amount of value they bring to the NBA, some amount of popularity yeah. that they they generate. And actually, um, uh, one thing I, d- I discovered recently is the PGA Tour does something exactly mm-hmm. like this now. It's called, I think it's called the Player uh, Performance Incentive Program or something. I, or the, it should be called the Tiger Woods Performance Incentive Program is what it should be it's, called. It's, it's, it's basically <laughs> a pool of money the PGA has put aside. I think it's like $40 million in the past year that uh, they, they rank players based on five metrics, which include like, you know, how much... Uh, sort of TV time do they get during tournaments mm-hmm. and like their social media following things like that, like things that are not related to their, their golf shots at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what they do is they pay out players based on this ranking system. It's like a leaderboard. And so they pay out players mm-hmm. based on this ranking system. And I think something like that could be really interesting for the NBA because it's so player driven. Um, so much of the value to the NBA is driven like just by the players personalities and personas. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, obviously LeBron and Steph and those top players get rewarded through tons of endorsements, but there's this additional gap even that that's not being filled in. I would just like to see the NBA introduce something that it's not going to change even like the sorting incentives. Like I should play for a good team or a bad team. It's just like it's fully recognizing that, look, these players are bringing tons of value to us and should be compensated in in some sort of way. Yeah. And so what we're talking about here really is just all ways to change the formula of the BRI, which is ultimately like what where this money's going to come from. Again, I go back to the question I started with. In 2030, assuming he's good, who is paying Cameron Booz's rookie max extension? Because this current broadcast model we don't think is sustainable, right? Like if the value of the of the traditional eyeball numbers are going down, you as the product are not delivering the audience that advertisers are going to pay for. So if that money goes away, well now what? And these 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 companies, ESPN, ABC, TNT, whoever and this is not just NBA related. This is all sports. They're getting killed yeah. on these broadcast rights deals. You're paying billions. There's no, I mean, I don't know this is a fact, but as an economist, I'm sure you can probably have a point on this. There's no way they're making up that money on ad revenue. It's just not feasible. Like it, it just can't be. You're 5 billion. I mean, I don't even know what the NFL deal is, but it's way more than that. Right? Yeah, like I'm, it's a lot of money. Uh, I'll, I will. uh th- the, the sad part is they still are making lots of money, but they're making less money than they than they used to be. And so I think I saw recently like ESPN's uh, profits from this last quarter, like $3 billion, which yeah, I, I don't know what their okay. usual amount is, but that still seems right. like a lot to me. Um, yeah, I, like I've, you know, I think what's really interesting to me about this, uh, this new generation of viewers and how to monetize like the new, the, the younger NBA fan mm-hmm. is um, I sort of feel optimistic and here's why um, the, NBA still has so much interest. And I think that that, like, you know, that interest is sort of diluted maybe right now. It's like there's some so the old generation who likes to just watch their their typical broadcast television. There's a the younger generation who basically only consumes the NBA via social media. It's sort of disjointed. But but you still have this culture of interest in in the product. And I think that, that that's a nice foundation to be to have. When you compare that to like another sport like baseball where the foundation is like truly crumbling like under them, like uh, that that's a much tougher place because you have to make much more drastic changes much more quickly. And that's risky. Like that's inherently risky. It can compromise the the value of the product to your existing uh, base. And so, so that's uh, that's a scarier scenario, but I, but I do think the NBA has an opportunity to, um, to, to dip into some of these creative 
mm-hmm. sort of mechanisms of, of how they um, promote their product and, and how they get get fans to stay engaged um, because there there is a there is a base interest and I th- and I think that interest um, you know is is it's either flat or maybe slightly growing but that, that's not a bad place to be given all of the sort of negatives we've been talking about of the current broadcast situation I think it's growing right and I think one of the things that like we Henry likes to talk about is like the NBA is a television show right right if you think about it in that way and its stars of its TV show are super popular that's if, if that's your, that's the model for making a TV show, you're going to be successful, right? Because you're popular people who people want to see, but we just got to figure out how are we monetizing and how are we, in, in other words, how are we showing them and their popularity right. to the audience so they can consume it in a manner they want. And I think it, it it's exactly what you were saying before, which is we have to, we have to disentangle the business from the games itself. Like the games are interesting and they provide a platform for, for, basketball people to watch basketball but there are like so many other avenues that people are interested in related to basketball and professional basketball right like we brought up the last dance i mean steph curry just released his underrated documentary i mean i was even watching steph curry on hot ones like like, <laughs> like this has nothing to do with basketball like it's just it's just right. me watching steph curry because mm-hmm. i'm interested in him as a person and his story um mm-hmm. and and so i think we we should i mean Look, the NBA is doing this to some extent, but I think there's for this next generation where they are interested in these sort of shorter bursts of entertainment, yeah. like all these different avenues. Like the NBA games, it's always going to be two hours. Like I, I, you can't really change the, the right. game so much unless you were like, we're going to have 10 minute quarters. And you, like, it, there would, <laughs> right. it would be such a drastic change that I think that that's even like not possible to think about. But you can sort of fill out the the outside uh, of your of your base using some of these different mediums with which players um, are interacting. And I think, you know, to your point, you know, we talk about the league pass product, which is terrible. Guys, you got to fix that thing. You know, if the way that people are consuming on phones, right? Can we do something where the actual tool itself is interactive, right? Mm So, oh, my curry alert popped up. Things in the little menu shoots up. Oh, he's got a game tonight. I can click on that or I can watch the underrated doc or I can watch hot ones or what, right? Because I'm interested in Steph Curry, yep. but I can consume it in whatever areas I want to consume him in, right? Like I think, or I can gamble on him. Like oh, right. he's gonna hit. I can do maybe three things at once. Yeah, I'm gonna watch the doc. I'm gonna do a micro bet, and I'm gonna right. I think that's the way they have to start thinking about how this works completely. And I think um, yeah, the NBA I know has struggled a lot with like retaining viewers during half times and during timeouts, and oh, well. uh, <laughs> yeah. So that's like I mean, <laughs> a lot of those uh, in the end of a game, and so that doesn't help mm-hmm. the product either. Um, but I, but I think like getting more creative about like, you know, fans might might want to pop into another game because they see like some like if you could like have a bet log or something that like takes mm-hmm. you to whatever game is sort of where that bet's most interesting. Like, like I think there's there's so many opportunities um, that lend themselves to like this this short burst because people are like attention spans are declining. Like that, whether we like mm-hmm. it or not, that's the reality of of how uh, how we're consuming entertainment uh, these days. And so. You've gotta, you've gotta keep people interested, and it, and and that involves like quicker, quicker burst of more interesting things. You can't just like rely on a talk show at halftime to like keep people around. It's not gonna work anymore. So, um, especially during a regular season game, like I think, like that stuff like puts me to sleep, and and I'm you know one of the biggest <laughs> MMA fans you'll find. So I think I think finding ways to be creative about what people care about outside of the NBA, but it's related to to the players or uh, mm-hmm. to their gambling. Uh, those are those are important to to kind of give a shed light on. Absolutely. 
All right. Well, Scott, you're a Lakers fan, so we got we can't let you go without talking Lakers. You guys just extended Anthony Davis, which, you know, you kind of had to do. So is what it is. Um, how are you feeling about the squad cutting into next year? So uh, or this season, coming? love the squad. Um, I thought uh, we, we sort of didn't try to do too much this offseason. Uh, I mean, we got Reeves on the biggest discount. Talk about uh, underpaid players. I think Reeves mm. is going to absolutely overperform uh, his four year deal. Um, you know, I love the new pieces we added with uh, some some dynamic athleticism at center with Jackson Hayes, uh, Torian Prince to spread the floor a little bit, um, some veterans. So yeah, I mean, obviously for the Lakers, it's always health, and so I think correct. Um, you know, I'm really uh, I think AD has has some some proving to do still that he can stay healthy and, and not even just healthy. I mean, I think AD like when he's on the court, you can tell like is he healthy or not, even if he's if he's uh, playing. And so I think I would really like to see kind of him uh take the next step and really kind of be dominant like he was for that like i mean when i went to the wizards game here in december he had 55 and like and like 12 or something i mean that's that's the potential right there and so um yeah so i think um i'm excited to see how he uh how he can do um you know being healthy and, and dominant for the whole season so as an economist, I know you, you know, you're, I mean, maybe you're looking at this, but you, you, part of your players like superstars and their value. Um, as you know, here at, at uh, True Hoop, we did something called bonus wins and we try to figure out how do you actually determine what someone's value is. And you can actually do it, right? You don't uh, divide up total number of wins, total salary paid that way. And you go, a win is worth X amount of dollars, mm-hmm. right? And I think this year or this past season, a win was worth 3.75 million roughly give or take right so if you look at austin reeves's performance last year he had um 4.8 estimated wins so nearly five right so using that math that grades out it's somewhere around 13 and a half 14 million dollars a year he so like that deal is actually spot on for him like from an economic strictly economic standpoint but, but also that deal is spot on for him in his previous performance I, i'm sort of looking at reeves as like look he's on he's this gonna, like slope right. and so like in in years three and four he might even be worth double that from a win so standpoint. he's if he's producing 6.5 or 7 uh estimated wins then you're like oh we're, that's bonus right because we're already, we're paying him for you know 4.8 wins yeah. so that that's the hope right is that you get these guys on a contract where they're outperforming, and that's often rookies who turn into superstars very early. Yep. That's the best because you're like, oh, they don't pay, they don't make max money yet, but they're worth you know ten wins. That's 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 the holy grail. Yep. So yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see. Scott, this was awesome, man. We really enjoyed having you on. Um, I assume you're on socials and stuff, and people can find you tweeting out about economics of the game. Where at work? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, skaplan92. Um, always talking about basketball and my research that relates to to the NBA. Most of my research is is NBA focused, um, but I'm I'm al- always interested in the the general sports uh, sports conversation. So find me there. Awesome, man. It was really a pleasure having you. We'll definitely have to have you back. Guys, thank you so much for tuning into uh, the Future of, Sp- of the NBA uh, podcast series. We will have uh, our third and final episode sometime next week. Uh, stay tuned for that. But Scott, thanks again, everybody. Have a great one. We'll see you later. <laughs>